If 9 of 10 scripts are generic and 2% of employees are responsible for 50% of an ever-increasing drug spend, your employers are facing a huge problem. What, if anything, can move those numbers and make a significant change in drug spend? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change you want to see. This episode is brought to you by Shift Shaper Strategies. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. Clarify your message so you win more clients, crush your sales goals, and build your practice. Learn more at shiftshaperstrategies.com. And now, here's your host, StoryBrand Certified Guide and Chief Transformation Strategist at Shift Shaper Strategies, David Saltzman. On this episode of Shift Shapers, we're speaking with an old friend of the podcast, Promote John. He is CEO at Vivio Health, and we spoke to him a couple of years ago. He's a very, very knowledgeable fellow, especially around the area of what's going on in the wide world of pharmaceuticals. And a lot has changed since the last time we talked, so we invited him back, and he was kind enough to accept our invitation. With that, welcome, Promote. David, thank you very much for having me again. It's our pleasure. So let's start at the place where everybody starts. We've watched prescription drug costs continue to drive healthcare spend. Has it leveled off or is it continuing to go up? And how much is it driving costs? You know, we're seeing the same sort of trends overall. And, you know, one of the biggest areas of trend increase is still in the area of specialty drug costs. And I think since the last time we spoke, you know, we've seen a couple of interesting things. One is, of course, drugs like Zolgensma with an over $2 million price tag hitting the market. And then we've also seen a lot more usage, if you will, of these specialty, you know, quote unquote, specialty drugs, which, you know, ultimately really aren't special as much as we categorize them as special so we can just charge more for them. But ultimately, yeah, those categories are growing in utilization and in sort of the extremes on cost. And as you know, since pharmaceutical manufacturers raise prices typically by set percentages every year, you know, it's only going to grow, right? As a result of these drugs, there are very few of them have any competition. And as a result, they tend to only go in one direction at this point. So is most of the growth that you're seeing in the specialty drug category? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, you know, generic drugs are, you know, a rough rule of thumb is about nine out of 10 scripts are generic. And out of those nine out of 10, they account for about 15% of our drug spend. Wow. I mean, a crazy way to think about it would be that we could almost give away nine out of 10 scripts to every American, and it would probably cost us 5%. We don't need all the infrastructure just to give it away. That's insane, but completely understandable in light of what you just told me. So specialty drugs are used for treating, like a lot of people know about Enbrel and those which are have been around for a while, and those are used for treating long-term chronic conditions. Are all specialty drugs tied to long-term chronic conditions? No. You know, interestingly enough, if you look at sort of the breakdown of typical spend in the specialty drug space, you'll probably find if you're a large employer in the U.S. or a typical, you know, large employer in the U.S. or across the population, if a large population, 
you'll find probably about 40 to 50% of your specialty spend is probably in the categories of inflammatory diseases and MS. And so the inflammatory diseases would be things like rheumatoid arthritis, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, and psoriasis. And as it turns out, psoriasis is the actually area that has the highest growth rate from a dollar and percentage perspective in the inflammatory disease space, because it's sort of the untapped area. You know, RA has been pretty much tapped, if you will, when you think about sort of the maturity of some of, the, some of these drugs like TNF inhibitors and other things on the market. And so as a result of that, you're seeing a huge growth in the area of psoriasis, which is also is much more common in some ways. And so that tends to be the majority of the spend. And then the next category is oncology. And the thing with oncology drugs is that, again, they tend to be even smaller percentages of the population. People tend to go through multiple lines of therapy. When you look at it, you're seeing a lot of these oncology therapies, which have very, you see two things in oncology therapies. You see very few drugs that actually cure anyone. So out of the gate, we already know that very few of these things cure. It, you know, and it depends on what kind of cancer. Certain cancers, you have an extremely high cure rate, right, for breast cancer and things like that. If you had it or, or prostate cancer, very likely you're not going to die of one of those things. You're going to die of something else, right, even if you were to get it. And so when you break it down, you start seeing that once you fall outside of those categories, you see more and more drugs falling into two categories. One is that you've got drugs that, you know, extend life ex expectancy by not a lot, and they typically end up being quite expensive. And then you also see drugs that now a lot of them are being used in, in what's called the adjuvant case, which is, think of it as prophylactic or preventative, where people are being given now these drugs that were used for acute, as, and now some, some of these are becoming chronic. And, and often there isn't great data that life expectancy or anything is improved by the use of these. But we're seeing those areas growing, because you can imagine for every person who dies of cancer, even for like breast cancer, they're probably, if my math is right, in the 8 to 10 range of people who don't die of it. And if you can put them on adjuvant therapies, whether it extends your life or not, no one's paying attention. It's a huge money-making machine, right, for pharma. Let's go back to the TNF inhibitors for a moment. There seems to have been an explosion of these things recently. Is that just commerce chasing market share, or are they all actually that different one from the other? In the TNF inhibitor category, I mean, there, there are now different mechanisms of action, right, uh, could be used to target different things. If you will, let's say that you have RA. There are now different categories of drugs, and the TNF inhibitors themselves, the most common drugs that we think of probably the most widely used are Humira, Embril, and Remicade, you know, on the infused side, probably the most common drugs out there. And now for all of those, there are biosims available on the market too. So what's, what's, you know, what's interesting about that is that often we think of, you know, most of these drugs that are expensive are something like life-saving oncology drug. There's only one thing on the market. In the TNF inhibitor space, since you brought that up, the drugs, that the popular drugs, Humira, Embril, and Remicade, all have biosims on the market. All are past patent. These represent some of the largest spends. Humira, almost guaranteed, is the largest spend for every employer in America. It's a drug that's been off patent for a couple of years. So it's not the blockbuster new drug. It's the old drug that is end of life, if you will. And there are biosims available on the market for all three of them. And in the case of Humira, the biosim is, is available in every part of the world. Actually, for all of them, all the biosims are available in every other part of the world. And they're almost first line now for anyone who's on any of these therapies in pretty much all of the world, except the United States. 
where, for example, Humira's Biosim is not available in the U.S. market because AbbVie has threatened to litigate against the five manufacturers or six manufacturers of Biosims, saying, if you come to the U.S., we'll litigate against you. And they've all agreed not to sell in the United States. But if the, if the drug that's being sold in the United States is off patent, what's their leverage? How do they say to somebody, you know, if you, know, if you come into the United States, we're going to sue you? As it turns out, it, you know, this is quite interesting. Two weeks ago, one of the states filed a lawsuit against AbbVie, claiming this was anti-competitive. And the ruling actually came back two weeks ago that it wasn't by the definition of anti-competitive activity. So if you were to step backwards and ask, well, what's AbbVie actually doing in this case? So what AbbVie's done is AbbVie's gone to the manufacturers. And remember, the Biosyn manufacturers, imagine that AbbVie makes about $20 billion on just one drug, Humira, a year. Their revenues on Humira are bigger than, you know, add up all the law firms in the U.S. and put them together, right? And I'm like, I don't even know if they're going to come close to just one drug, right? And so AbbVie, and if you're a manufacturer, you're going to lose the litigation battle, or you're going to have to have literally hundreds of millions of dollars for litigation against AbbVie to be able to sell in the U.S. And so AbbVie said, hey, we're going to litigate against you, and you're not going to be able to sell because we're just going to litigate, and we have extremely deep pockets. So either we can agree that you're not going to sell this drug until 2023, I believe, or 2022 or 2023, or we'll litigate against you. And every manufacturer said, we don't have enough money to litigate against you, therefore we're not going to sell in the U.S. till then. But why doesn't the U.S. government get involved? I mean, it sounds to me as though it's a restraint of free trade issue. Because according to this court case that just came through, you know, two weeks ago, that it is not by the definition of antitrust and antitrust violation. You know, part of the issue that we have in the antitrust world is that we've got pretty narrow definitions of antitrust. And as a result, if you imagine you're on the antitrust side, that side tends to be pretty narrow because it's the government launching lawsuits or a whistleblower or somebody else you know, filing a lawsuit. But usually the party in this case would be the government uh, in a lot of cases. And as a result, it's a very narrow definition. Apparently in this case, it doesn't meet the narrow definition of uh, antitrust in this case. Just for contrast, this alternative to Humira that's available elsewhere, can you give me an idea of what Humira costs versus what that costs? So a couple of data points there. When you talk about the rest of the world, let's actually talk about Humira before we even get to the biosimilar. In the United States, the net cost, you know, after rebates, all of these things for Humira is probably around $50,000 a year. Okay. And you could be paying more because again, you're, you know, that's if you have a great contract and everything else at $50,000 a year, if you were to go to England, for example, which is an example of a higher priced reimbursement country, they will only pay a little over $10,000 a year for Humira. So even Humira, before we can talk about a biosim, realize that in the rest of the world, these same drugs already are significantly less expensive, even before the biosims hit the market. Is there any way to break the back of that, or is Big Pharma's lobby just so good that you can't approach it? Well, I mean, part of our problem is that if you look at sort of how public policy is made in this country... You know, the public policy benefits people who have deep pockets. Who has deep pockets? Pharma has deep pockets. The American people don't have deep pockets. And if you think about it, you know, part of the problem with the insurance system in the U.S. is that everybody, whether you're an insurer, whether you're a manufacturer, whether you're a hospital, whether you're a doctor, 
everybody is on the side of selling something and making money when, you know, higher price things are sold or utilization goes up. And so as a result, none of the people who have money have an economic incentive to lobby or come up with policies that go against, uh, you know, if you will, the economic base. And until that inverts, we don't have much possibility of public policy being driven by anything other than the interests of who's got the largest pocketbook. And now a word from our sponsor. It's a fact. Salespeople and organizations lose opportunities because they don't clearly communicate their value. In today's market, your story is your message. It should be crystal clear, perfectly arranged, and precisely targeted to attract the clients you want. As a certified story brand guide, we use the exclusive SB7 process to create that story and the websites and collateral that deliver it. If your message isn't cutting through the noise, we can help. Visit us at shiftshaperstrategies.com to learn how we can help you find, clarify, and deliver a message that wins clients, crushes sales goals, and builds your practice. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. So learn more and schedule that call today at shiftshaperstrategies.com. That's shiftshaperstrategies.com. And now back to our discussion. What kind of cataclysmic thing do you think would have to happen in order for that to invert or, or is it even possible? You know, as crazy as it is, if you remember, when the Trump administration started off their term, one of the big areas of focus was on drug pricing. And if you remember also, there were a lot of good discussions that came out at that point around some of the issues around drug pricing. And a lot of good proposals came out also. One of those proposals was a why should Americans pay more than other developed countries for the same drug? And that we should place a national law or something that states that, look, you can charge whatever you want for a drug, but nobody should be obligated to pay more than what, say, the average or the lowest of other developed countries would be, right? Mm -hmm. Now, we talked about a lot of those things, but and those are all extremely, you know, at some point, if you were to step back right and ask, why doesn't that make sense? There's no reason for it not to make sense. And here's why. Number one, if you look at the United States, we are about 4% of the population of the world. I don't think we as Americans really understand how small we are from an overall population perspective. We represent 4% of the people on this planet. And at some point, pharma and other folks come back with these, you know, these statements that are supposed to make Americans feel bad, like, well, if Americans paid less for drugs, then everyone in the rest of the world wouldn't have drugs. And you know, all these arguments that are, by the way, economically completely fallacious. But at the end of the day, those things make us feel like we have a moral obligation to overpay for things, to pay for R&D. And again, if you were to look at the actual R&D spend, you'll see out of the gate that, you know, that pharma companies, you read their 10Ks, they spend about 2x on sales and marketing as they do on R&D, right? So Americans are not subsidizing R&D to begin with. And if you were to take that a step further, even if that were true, then you'd have to make an argument that every American should have the right to decide whether they'd like to voluntarily do that or not. It shouldn't be pharma deciding for them. And so we've got sort of the worst of all worlds right now. We don't have a single payer system. There's a benefit, again, I'm not advocating one way or the other, I'm saying that if you have a single payer system, you look at a drug like Humira and you say, hey, look, 
our economic value or return that we get in either quality of life improvement or life expectancy is X. As a result, we'll pay you X. And we don't care what you're asking for the drug. You're free to ask whatever you'd like. This is all it's worth and this is all we'll pay. Instead, in the U.S., we've got the opposite, which is with the Affordable Care Act, you know, one of the downsides of the Affordable Care Act is we said that, hey, all of these things must be covered. Everyone is required to provide all this coverage. But the government didn't say anything about, well, if this is a required thing, then what is someone allowed to charge for it? Or what is the basis for charging for it? Or what does competition have to look like if someone has to buy this thing? And that's the part where the government failed. Because the government has neither price controls to say, look, you can't just charge a bazillion dollars because you want to. We're not obligated to pay. Or it hasn't put in the opposite saying, fine, you can charge whatever you want, but nobody's obligated to pay that because it's unfair. So we have neither of those things, which is why we pay these egregious prices, because we have no implicit or explicit price controls. It has nothing to do with R&D or anything else. I mean, it's pernicious. It even up until recently affected Medicare, which arguably is what half the spend in the United States. And even they have only recently decided that they can, you know, they can deal with competitive bidding. So, well, I mean, that's that's a really interesting point. I, I think people miss the fact that Medicare is one of the largest single payer systems in the world. Right. When you actually think about Medicare and the number of participants it has, it is bigger than a lot of other single payer system countries. And imagine a world in which Medicare, which is larger as a single payer than most countries are cannot negotiate on drug prices. Imagine the ludicrousness of that. Well, when you're spending other people's money, it's easy not to care about how much you're spending. Well, I mean, I think you brought up a very important factor, right? Which is that we all spend other people's money differently. What's really interesting about what you just said also is that not only is there the sense of the butter knife, sort of every American spends every other American's money differently. It's actually not like that. And the reason why is that healthcare spend tends to be very Pareto in distribution. What we see in the specialty world is about 50% of the dollars now being spent by about two out of 100 people. Okay, So what that means is that if you're one of those two out of 100 people, you're already what's referred to in healthcare as a high flyer, mm-hmm. which means that you're the one who's spending, like Medicare, you know, we, we see that term used a lot. There is a very small number of people for whom all the dollars that we have are being concentrated on, which means that if you're the person, if you're one of the 98 people sitting next to that person, you're the person who's paying for the two out of 100. So ultimately, it's that a large amount of Americans' money is being concentrated into smaller and smaller sets of people. And the reason for it isn't the person, right? It's not because the person is charging more money. It's because we have a system in which that person, the cost associated with them, has no limits associated with it. And as a result, manufacturers can charge insane prices for a drug that no one else in any other part of the world will will pay because we're concentrating more and more dollars from smaller and smaller, I mean, a larger and larger number of people into a smaller and smaller number of people. So we've got a few minutes left. Just to close the loop on our discussion about Humira, let's talk about the biosimilar and what it costs. So the, the biosimilars are roughly in the 20 to 30% range. But, you know, what's 
you use the word pernicious. What's more pernicious is actually something else that's going on. So imagine that the biosims are coming to the market and you're asking the question of, but why is AbbVie litigating and putting a date of 2023? Well, that's because AbbVie has several follow-on drugs to Humira in the market that they're actively marketing. The same thing happened with Herceptin. So Herceptin, you know, on the, uh, for, in the oncology space went generic last year or Biosim available for it last year. And Genentech on the same year came out with a slightly differently packaged version of Herceptin along with the PDM1, I believe, drug that you, you obviously could take separately. But they've packaged it slightly differently, and they have a new version of it coming out. You understand the game here, right? What they're trying to do is get the market to adopt the new drug so that when the biosim is finally available on the market, there's actually no demand for it anymore. You know, it's a nice way to live if you can afford it. But uh, at sooner or later, I would think that the dam is going to have to burst. You know, the dam is not going to burst until Americans say we've had enough, you know, 20% of our GDP being, being misused you know, on our behalf, it's our money. It's like a lot of the unrest that's going on in our country today. At some point, people have got to stand up and say, we're just not going to do this anymore. It's just unfair. And we don't stand up. We just are against unfairness, even if it's systemic unfairness of race, if it's systemic unfairness of healthcare resources being concentrated into the manufacturers and hospitals and other providers. It's just unfair on every level. And until the American people say we've had enough to the politicians and everyone else, it's very difficult to change these things economically because you're fighting against, really, you're fighting against monopolies every day if you want to fight against them. So I'll go back to the conversation we were having offline as we wrap up here. It's back to the 70s. It's got to be power to the people, right? Look, if the dam's going to burst, it's going to be because people care. If nobody cares about how their money is being spent in this country, well, then you know, shame on everybody. Why do we expect anything to change if we don't care enough to be the of the people who make it change? Yeah, but I mean, I think there's still, an, despite 15 years of consumer-directed health care, there's still a vast majority of people who think they're not spending their own money. Well, the problem, again, is that you have to remember that, imagine that I'm the person who needs a very expensive drug that's a bazillion dollars. What's my view of the world? My view of the world is I should have access to whatever, right? Of course, right? Yeah. Now, imagine that the rest of everyone else looks at that and says also, wow, we should all have access to those things if we ever need them, right? And again, that's a fair point, but that has nothing to do with the question of access, has nothing to do with the question of, but how much is a fair price for that? Is a bazillion dollars a fair price? And until we can answer and separate access from what is something worth, right? Other, And it can't just be that, I'd like to ask for a bazillion dollars because I can. Until we separate access from saying, this is what the fair market value of this is, well, then we're not going to be able to solve this problem. And that is a good place to end our conversation for today. Promote John, CEO at Vivio Health. We hope you come back again sooner this time because the conversations are always fascinating and enlightening. Hey, thank you very much, David, for having me again. I look forward to being back. Our pleasure. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Shift Shaper Strategies and may not be reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without our express written permission. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. <laughs>